We're back for season six of my podcast. I'm all about putting the human factor back into business by helping organisations become places where people are happy, well and able to perform at their best. And that's what my guests shed light on with their expertise and experience. As those who know me will be very familiar with, my mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. And that means we'll be covering a whole range of topics that impact on employee experience, engagement and mental well-being. And many of you will know that I hate tick boxes. So we'll be kicking those out, getting beneath the surface of shiny new initiatives, stripping back layers of complexity and going back to the fundamentals of good business. That's the people. This series runs alongside the launch of Leadership Labs and Manager Labs that I'm excited to be facilitating with the fabulous Gemma Ellison of Heart Leadership. These are interactive and dynamic communities that turn typical L&D on its head. If you are a manager or leader and want an opportunity to problem solve, challenge the status quo, experiment and evaluate all within a small supportive group, get in touch. More information and contact details are in the podcast notes. I'm your host, Lisa, psychologist, psychotherapist and founder of It's Time for Change. Thank you for joining me on Beyond the Water Cooler. Just before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that this episode is a bit different. Amantha and I are continuing our conversation about the Resilience Collective. So here is the next episode in that series. Welcome back to the Resilience Collective, where today we are talking about addiction. So I'm here with my co-host, Amantha King. Do you want to introduce yourself, Amantha? Hi, yes, I'm Amantha King. I'm an executive performance strengths coach and I also wear another hat in that I'm a workplace menopause consultant as well. So thank you, Lisa. And I'm Lisa Lloyd um, of It's Time for Change and I'm a psychologist uh, working with organisations around the right culture for people to thrive and I'm also a psychotherapist for one day. Um, we are delighted to be joined by Richie Paxton today. Um, he works with the Epic uh, Restart Foundation which is a UK charity that rebuilds lives after gambling harm. So thank you for joining us. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit more, Richie, about what you do and, and what the, um, the foundation's all about? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Uh, so like Lisa says, I'm Richie. Um, got lived experience of uh, multiple addictions. Uh, and then once I did manage to to stop and sort myself out, which, which took rehab, um, I then thought, you know, how am I going to give back? And a few years in recovery, I ended up going back to university, got a counselling degree, and then ended up working in Epic Restart Foundation from its outset, from the beginning. And what Epic is all about is, like Lisa says, is rebuilding positive lives after gambling harm. So a lot of people uh, struggle with addiction of many kinds, and we specifically focus on those who've suffered gambling-related harm. And what I mean by that is, you know, gambling addiction has took over their life in some way. Um, a lot of people end up stopping gambling, you know, and, and, and you can do that. And there's, there is hope out there, which is what I really want to get out there is, is if, you, if you are struggling with any kind of addiction, then there is hope and you can change it around. But you have to do a little bit of work to get there. Um, a lot of people stop gambling, but they're still left with what we call legacy harms, the legacy harms of gambling. So a lot of people have broken relationships. They have lack of self-worth, lack of confidence. Um, they've got a lot of debt to try and sort out and manage. And they've also probably put their health and well-being on, on the back burner a little bit and, and not really focused on that. So they're the kind of three pillars of our organisation is, is improving people's health and well-being, helping people rebuild confidence, resilience, self-worth, and then helping them manage relationships that might be broken or, or trust lost and trying to help them build new support networks. And by doing that, we hopefully help people you know, go on to live a better life that for me, you know, the, the saying that really resonates with me is build a life you don't need to escape anymore. And I think once people are start to do that, they can really, really, really go on and, and be whoever or whatever they want to be. It's so important, isn't it? What you just described is such a holistic approach to looking after people as they go through that um, journey of, of stopping their addiction and then for what next? Because I think a lot of people, when they think about stopping a behavior it's like they stop it but then there's this big void <laughs> so it's, it's so I really like what you just described in terms of the bigger picture around sort of well-being and you know rebuilding someone's life 
Yeah, I think I think that's what it's got to be, hasn't it? I think if if you don't address the underlying issues first and foremost, I think that's really important. You know, I think if you're not aware of why, you know, you went down that route and became addicted to whatever substance or behaviour that may be, then you're really struggling. So the first thing you need is an awareness, awareness of actually what was going on for me. And the next thing you need to do is accept it. Accept this is where I am in my current reality of life and then be able to create some sort of plan, create some action plan around what it is that I'm going to do, whether that be rehab, you know, counselling, psychotherapy, work with psychologists, work with coaches, whatever it is. What I want to get across is that there's multiple pathways to recovery. You know, a lot of people think you've got to go into rehab, you've got to, you've got to speak to a counsellor, you've got to, you know, you've got to go this this one route. But actually, there's so many different routes to recovery. And I think it's really important that if you've tried one thing that you don't give up hope, you go on and try the next thing. And, you know, over a period of time, I, I tried 22 year old was the first time that I ever had a counselling session around a gambling, a gambling addiction. Um, it was 34 when I went into rehab, you know, and, and that's a long period of time. And there was multiple attempts at trying to stop my addiction, um, which, you know, for whatever reason, I just just didn't manage to do. And what I found out in rehab was because I wasn't trying to address the underlying issue. I was just trying to stop the action or stop the behavior. And that would work for, for a period of time. But actually, in the in the long run, um, what I really needed to do was to get to the what was going on underneath the surface of, of myself and, and start understanding my thought processes, my feelings, my emotions, my behaviours. And once I was able to do that, I stopped calling myself a gambling addict. I stopped calling myself a drug addict. I stopped calling myself an alcoholic. And it was like, sort your life out, Richie, because these all, all these things are just your way of dealing with life. These are all just coping strategies. They, these aren't the, the root cause of the problem. And rehab was a, a great foundation for me to be able to unpick all of that and get some support around actually what is going on. And and for me, you know, and this is my story, but I think there's a lot of sort of crossover with a lot of other people that I've spoke to is feelings and emotions were something that I never wanted to face in my life. You know, I had a few traumatic things happen in, in my late teens. Um, but even before that, when I was at school, you know, going through, and uh, the education system, I was always that kid that was full of fear. Now I, I always wanted to run away. So um, where I ended up running was the boogies the first time round, and then it was to recreational drugs, and then alcohol, and then in the end it was it was massively um, cocaine use, you know, and, and it was kind of a progressive thing that snowballed through my late teens into my twenties and early thirties. So, um, yeah. Once, once, once I put all them things into the same box, let's call it, and was able to address them all as that's how I coped. Um, let's find different ways of coping and let's deal with the real issues that's going on, which were my feelings and emotions. Um, I was then able to, you know, sort 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 them out and and make make progress in my life. You articulate wow. really well. Like just hearing that is so powerful because. Um, Oh my gosh, I have so much you just said in terms of just how quick we can snowball because um things aren't right in people's lives and it is coping strategy. And what you're saying really resonates with what Amanda and I believe in terms of um avoiding sticky plasters, avoiding that just kind of a quick fix. Um yeah. and actually under addressing underlying root causes of, of problems, and which is obviously what you've discovered. And has made all the difference to you, doesn't in terms of um, you know, you can't just you can't just stop something, you've got to look at what was going on for you in your life and actually addressing that and recognizing that's your emotions, your feelings. Really, really powerful. Yeah, I think it's it it's a what a lot of people do, you know. I, I see a, a wide range of people who are in completely different stages of their recovery after gambling harm, you know, and at some point at some point on their journey they generally get to the point where they have like one of them light bulb moments and put the pieces together and they identify a period in their life that was traumatic or you know they had unmet needs as child as a child or you know they were just trying to rebel against something you know or um a lot of people you know didn't get shown the love or 
they didn't get shown the affection from parents. There was no sort of compassion. And, you know, I've done a lot of work around inner child as well. And I, I firmly believe that actually, if we all can support our inner child a little bit more, then, you know, we can be more compassionate and we can actually address those underlying issues that can help people move forward in life um, with compassion, with care, and with understanding. But I firmly believe it has to come from within. You know, I think through my addiction, I was constantly looking for external validation around life, you know, that I was worthy, that I had a place in society, that I was successful, that, you know, I played a lot of football and that was the start of my my kind of adulthood, let's call it. Um, I was involved in professional football at the age of 16 and I needed that because that gave us worth, you know, that gave us worth at that time because I had zero worth and looking back at football was my first addiction that was definitely the first addiction because as soon as I was in that environment I felt like I was part of something you know the outside world then didn't matter the feelings and emotions that I struggled to deal with didn't matter because I was on a football pitch and I was wanted and I was needed but what I now know is that actually I was only a commodity of the football club and I was only ever there whilst they've thought that I could add value to their football club and as a human being that's quite difficult when you get injured you know which is my story I got injured and didn't play for nine months so how do you how do you manage them feelings and emotions of not being able to play when actually that's where you get your self-worth from and that's where you get your confidence from and that's where you actually think you have value in life you know and, and when that's not there anymore it's it strips you it really strips you of of all of themselves self-esteem self-confidence self-worth and I think it's so important to for people to recognize that if you go inwards and internal, then you can get you can find that self-worth and confidence and resilience within yourself. And that's when recovery really starts. Well, I believe recovery really starts when you can actually go internal and you can show compassion to yourself. Oh, can I, so, so can I just say something? So I find that just so enriching, Richie, uh, no pun intended, um, because... Because so often when people come with midlife stresses, we've done an episode on stress already, done an episode on anxiety, uh, you know, sort of depression. Um, these are all touch points and precursors along this journey, aren't they? And, um, and whether you end up with any of, of these, it's still important work to do. I mean, I've got my brain model literally right just there because there's no single conversation in a coaching environment where we're not talking about where are these things manifesting? You know, is this an emotional response? Is this an unmet need? You know, often we 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 forget that feelings and emotions that appear real formulate our thoughts and then that's what we ruminate on. Um, and then, like you say, if we don't have that capacity, we've never been taught how to generate self-worth from within and of course, we are going to go looking for it. And and out of curiosity, and I hope it's okay to ask you this, in those moments that you were leaning on those tools to to cope and to survive, what did it get for you? You know, can you describe what 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 was the trigger before a moment of reliance on something, be it gambling, alcohol, um, drugs? What was it you were trying to remove or dumb down or turn down? If you can explain it that yeah. way. Yeah, I think for me, it was complete escapism. It was mm. escapism from the reality that I, that was presented to us. And it wasn't actually the reality. It was my perception of the reality. It was my perception that I didn't, I wasn't worthy. It was my perception that I didn't have a place in society. It was my perception I didn't have a belonging. And that's all it was. It was my story. It was my story in my head. That was the problem. A lot of the time because actually I was loved you know I have got great family I had great support networks but I couldn't see that I couldn't see that I had them things and it was my perception of what was going on and you know I spent so much time in my head in my own head in my late teens and early 20s that that was what I needed to escape from I needed to escape from them thoughts and and feelings and unwanted emotions that that came along really and once I found gambling in the first instance as soon as I, I put that first bet on that anticipation of what I could potentially win and that dopamine response that I got was phenomenal and it was like give me some more of this and let's not worry about the outside world and it was yeah. for me it was it was just instant gratification I was looking for it was instant you know and, and that's what I got from addiction everything that I ever done whether it be behavioral or substance it was an instant response that I got and that was all what I was always searching for 
And I think that's how a lot of people end up addicted is because they're searching for that instant hit that they got um, in the early days, you know, and as it manifests, you need more of it. You need, in, in terms of gambling, you need more frequency, you need bigger bets, you need to be doing it more often. But um, it's all escapism for me. It was always about trying to avoid what was really going on. Um, and, you know, and I grew up in a very loving family, um, but a lot of a lot of you know me, me me dad for example really struggled to show his emotion so it wasn't something that was brought up around it wasn't something that I um I knew how to do the men in the family didn't do it you know so it was generational and my granddad for example they were in the, he was in the war you know like how how can them how can they come back from a war and and just integrate back into society and and show love and compassion and care and affection and all them things when They've been on the front line of World War Two, for example. So I don't blame anybody for it. It's just the truth of what went on. Um, but you also how... a really good point, Richie, in that you appear to have everything. Like you, you had a loving family, and you had, but you just didn't see it. And I think for in terms of when people think about who is at risk of being vulnerable, um. We can all look at other people and think they appear to have it all. They appear to have a good job or they appear to have a loving family. They appear to have a secure home, you know, whatever our judgments are. But unless the person feels it, it doesn't make yeah. any sense, it? And I think that's where we have to challenge some of our own assumptions about how other people are living because we don't really know what's going behind closed doors. Yeah, totally. I think um, social media is, is, is a massive thing that plays into people's lack of self-worth and stuff and we only ever see the highlight reel don't we that i think that's the the thing with social media we only ever see the good things and for me in my journey um social media wasn't around in the early days of my addiction so it, it, it isn't something that played a big part but I, I see it now still and my addiction can easily manifest itself in there you know let's sit and scroll on on a social media app for the next three hours and lose half a day um and all i'm trying to do is again escape escape actually doing whatever needs to be done in life so i am in recovery i've been in recovery for five and a half years now but it's still not easy and i can still see you know these things manifest in other behaviors um so yeah it, it, i think we've all got to be aware of and keep in check that i might never have presented as having an addiction but i can have a lot of unhealthy behaviors that potentially could manifest into an addiction um and i'm really you know, one of the things that are that really does worry me in society these days, you know, I've got an eight and a ten year old son and I can see how much already they want to rely on their devices, their iPads, their phones um, and and want to be part of that society that gets likes, you know, gets a dopamine hit basically, because that's all it is. It's a dopamine hit every time. And and the, the, the ten year old um it's got to be really managed very carefully in, in today's society, I think, around how a, we manage that. Because it's a fine line, isn't it? Um, because we do benefit from our dopamine. Uh, you know, when we've got habits that are enriching, they add value to our lives, we we were able to thrive. Um, and when, when we were talking earlier, I sort of wanted people to, you know, we don't want people scrolling or switching off this thinking that's not me, you know, because I'm all right type thing. I'm all right, Jack. Because actually, we're all like that, aren't we? You know, if you talk about, um, I watched the interview with... Um, uh, the guy from Friends who passed away very sadly um, and there, it was on Newsnight of all things here in the UK I don't know if you've seen the interview um, and basically the interviewer is going well it's just free choice isn't it you're just making the wrong choices you're choosing to do that and yeah. I just was so impressed with him um, in terms of how he um, answered that question he said actually no I'm not I'm not it's not free will anymore at this stage I have to have strategies to make sure the first thought of the day sets me up for the rest of the day um, and I want to bring that a little bit closer to home because um, I think most of us you know when you talk about that generation actually a lot of that generation are now leaders in organizations Richie so they don't come from a place of compassion they come from a place of 
tough love, hard, few hard knocks. We don't do the compassion thing around here. So I'm very aware that a lot of those leaders in their 50s and 60s will have had parents, you know, similar to yours with those same narratives bubbling around, you know, just like you pull your socks up and get on with it type thing. That's part of the problem. Part of the reason we're doing this series is because actually we need to readdress that balance, which is actually those people who have access to a mobile phone are probably leaning on things um, in an addictive type way. Maybe they're not calling it that. They're calling it something else, you know, whether that's you having to have a coffee before nine o'clock in the morning, whether that's your fixation with listening to a certain radio station. We all have that ability to be inflexible about things. And then when it encroaches into our physiology, and that's when we start to lose control, isn't it? Because actually there, it becomes a, a physiological need within the body to either have that dopamine hit, to have that substance. I mean, you only have to watch the Netflix series all about oxycodone to see just how damaging and how how it ruins whole families. So, so you know, can you see also that, that maybe there is an apathy in society that it's, I'm all right, Jack, it's nothing to do with me, that happens to other people? Yeah, totally. I think um, there was a big campaign this year around addic the Addiction Awareness Week and, and the title for that week was Everybody Knows Somebody. And I firmly believe that, you know, I firmly believe that everybody does know somebody. Um, it's said that a, a person with an addiction has 10 affected others, you know, generally. Um, and, and that's massive, you know, and, and I could probably name 20 people that were massively affected through my addiction, you know, whether that be people who'd employed us or, you know, colleagues at work even, um, my parents, my children, my partner at the time, um, friends, family. It just goes on and on, you know, and if you actually, it's like dropping a pebble in the water, isn't it? The, the ripple effect is just phenomenal. Um, so it does really affect everybody. I think what I would say, though, is, is so does recovery. So does recovery and offering that support and that sort of holding space for somebody that to be able to explore what's going on for them without trying to fix them. I think is the thing that so many people need in their life. And once they find that person that can be non-judgmental, can be empathetic and can show some sort of understanding, it can massively change somebody's world there and then because then they feel heard, then they feel supported. And judgment's massive, stigma's massive, especially around addiction that's substance misuse or behavioural like sex or drugs, uh, sex or gambling, for example. Um, but there's so many other addictions out there that aren't perceived with stigma, you know, and I'm, I, I've got to be very careful because I can see my addiction manifests in other ways. And yeah. started playing golf, believe it or not. I got in recovery and I started playing golf and I was like, I'm getting good at this. I'm going to play more golf, going to play more golf. And then it got to a point where I was like, should I pick the kids up on Sunday or should I play the golf competition? I was like, whoa, you know, that's old Richie talking. That's the old addicted personality coming through again but I was like I'm playing well I, I could win this golf competition and that anticipation of winning a golf competition and the dopamine hit I got from it was like phenomenal but actually you've got to check yourself every now and again and that's mm. golf you know and anybody that plays golf will probably say I'm probably addicted to it as well because it's that type of sport but you've got to be really be careful and um, something else that's that I've really noticed recently I'm very passionate about my job like I love it so much and it gives us passion and purpose and fulfillment and self-worth like nothing I've ever had before but we've got we're in a very very busy period at the moment and we've got a lot of events and last week I found myself working three days till nine o'clock or after and I was like I had to check in with my team and say I've just got to tell you all this because I need to get it out there and I've got to address it because it's not good and it's not a behaviour that I want to continue. But to everybody else, it's like, look at Richie, he's doing really well, he's succeeding, you know, he's he's putting all that work in and all that effort in. But actually, it was complete addictive behaviour, you know. So even though I'm five and a half years in recovery, I've still got to check myself all of the time. And this can manifest in anybody at any given time. And I know you've spoke a little bit around stress and depression and them types of things but that's just another manifestation for me in a different way just taking a different route and it's that that's the way they felt they it's like come out in them a little bit so trying to get to the 
the root cause is, is, is always what I try and encourage people to do and explore what's really going on. But then also, how do you overcome that? And how do you put boundaries in place? And how do you look after yourself? And what coping strategies have you got? And what's your support network like? Because all of them things are the things that can change somebody's world. You know, I, I really um, think you're, what you just said is really thought-provoking in terms of what addiction is, because your recognition that your um, goals is one thing, but also just how you have got stuck into work and how suddenly you find yourself completely consumed by that. And I think, again, when we're thinking about who is affected, who's at risk of addiction, it really sort of brings that message home that we are all susceptible and actually when we think about addiction and maybe addiction's the wrong term and we should be you know calling it something else in terms of what is it that you feel completely consumed by or whatever the language is because I think we all could think of something that we slightly obsess over or we just want we have we almost have a craving for to do more or to to engage with to, to feel really good about stuff um, and that's almost what we're talking about when we about addiction and the, the potential for that to become really problematic rather than it just being something like the kind of what we think of classic as drugs, alcohol and that kind of thing. Yeah, totally, I totally agree. I think um, addiction is, is quite a harsh word in the English, in English, English society. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people hear it and turn away from it because automatically they assume drink, drugs, gambling now is on the rise massively so them things are you know what people associate with but actually addiction can like I said manifest in so many different ways but what actually is addiction you know for me I think it's quite easy to break down in in terms of it's an excessive behavior that causes your life to become unmanageable and and that's the thing that you know some people don't recognize is it is is the thing or the behavior the substance taking you away from the person that you want to be and if it is, then it's got to get in check. You've got to try and get it in check. And however you do that, I think, is the is the is finding your own way. You know, like I said earlier, there's multiple pathways to recovery. Is it through support groups? Is it through therapy? Is it through, um, you know, setting limits? Is it through having an accountability coach? Is it through working with a, somebody within an organization that can offer that guidance or help? There's so many different ways, but a lot of people don't recognize the the behavior you know but and and i think for me you've just got to work out who do i want to be what's my values and what's my morals and what takes us away from my values and morals and when you can do that you can really you know get to the get to the behavior the substance or the the thing let's call it the thing that is actually you know is is giving you the the dopamine response or the the little hit or the avoidance or the escapism um, and once you do that, I think you can start addressing it because actually everything, everything in life starts with an awareness. And once you create that awareness, you've then got to ask yourself questions. And if you can ask yourself the right type of questions, it can take you to the to the next place, which hopefully is what action do I need to take to to help myself and help those around us. And, I, and that's sorry, Lisa, I was just saying that that's really important because when we're thinking about this in the context of work, then, I mean, that's challenging enough, isn't it? If you're just dealing with that, we know that wellbeing programs largely don't work. And one of the reports I read yesterday talked about expectation being the biggest problem in the workplace. Um, and so sort of linking that to to maybe putting both camps in the same place then which is to say actually how much is work responsible for this or how how much does work precipitate the manifestation I like the word when you were talking about replacing a word Lisa I thought compulsion Mm -hmm. uh, for me how how much does compulsion drive our behaviors you know or motivation because there is a motivation about doing the same thing over and over and over and over again you're getting something as a result of it even if you don't realize you know if you look at that whole thing on your mobile phone how many times you pick your mobile phone up every day I think it would shock people it'll be it will be over a hundred times a day for most people and that each time is a dopamine hit but if your boss is got high expectations of you and I have been this person high levels of presenteeism high levels of um getting things right uh 
because actually that in itself is rewarding for you either because you're really enjoying your work but then actually when it starts to be perceived as like you said Richie you're successful you're winning you're a you're a top performer at work it then drives that behavior to keep doing more which then drives the whole reliance on actually I can't keep going so what do you do instead so now then your stress levels are off the charts you're not looking after yourself but you are first person in last person out and you know and you're applauded for that it's like well you know Amantha she's always here she's always turning up but that then drives other people's expectations of you to expect that of you because you don't say no yeah so so how do we how, how do we how do we how do we bring that awareness into the workplace which is actually how does someone you know what what masking strategies do you think people are using in the workplace who clearly are somewhere on this continuum either they're at the stress stage either they're at the anxiety stage either they might be at the depression stage they might be in full-blown addiction where like you say excessive behavior which makes your life unmanageable but you're still turning up for work what strategies do you think people are deploying on a daily basis to show up in the workplace I, i think um for me, I, I always I always performed at work. I always was in employment. Um, I had really, really bad, unbelievable amounts of, you know, gambling addiction going on in my early 20s, but I still turned up at work every day. Um, I presented as being, you know, a very successful young 20-year-old guy, basically. Um, mid-20s, I started my own business, my own health and well-being business. Um looking after other people's health and well-being, believe it or not, you know. So I I ran, I had contracts with the NHS to run full prevention work. I'd done cardiac rehab, pulmonary rehab. I was working with um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, psychologists on a daily basis. And most of the time I'd had cocaine. And it wasn't there that they could see it, but actually that was the truth of the matter. And there were so many other things that actually if somebody was just had any understanding of addiction, they probably would have been able to spot it. Um, you know, I was in and out of the toilets. I was on and off my phone gambling all the time. Um, quite secretive. Nobody ever seen me screen. Nobody ever seen what I was actually on uh, to always turning my phone upside down. So there's, there's lots of things or sort of behaviors that people do um, to avoid in and out of the toilet, you know, to watch a race, watch a, watch a, watch a horse race or spin on a roulette wheel or all of this stuff's done on your phone now so in the past in the early days of my gambling addiction I had to go in the boogies but towards the end I didn't and I think that's something that we need to be aware of in in today's society that it's so accessible to gamble but actually Mm. all of them other things as well you know drink drugs you know you do so much of that before your physical appearance starts to change or you slur your words or you know you smell of alcohol or whatever so there's lots of other things that people can do to to hide what's actually really going on and i think having just a a way of not confronting but offering support you know if somebody had come to me and said what's going on richie there would have been complete denial you know complete denial shut down you know if somebody had said to us you know richie if i was going on and you ever want to talk feel free to come and have a word that would be completely different, you know? And and that's kind of what did happen in the end. Me and my mum had this kind of fractious relationship where we were very similar people. We were both very stubborn. My mum just wanted to fix her son, basically. That's, that's all it was. At the, at underlying everything, my mum just wanted her son to get well and sort himself out. Um, and then three months before I went into rehab, my mum came to us and she just, she gave us two phone numbers and she just said, one day you might want to use them phone numbers and left. And I was like, where's the argument? You know, where's the confrontation? This isn't me, mom. But I, I took them numbers and put them in my bedside drawer. In the past, there would have been confrontation. I would have ripped the numbers up. I would have thrown them away. I would have put them in the bin. But my mom changed her tact, let's call it. And it was that thing that, you know, I had an episode um, where I'd lost a lot of money. I'd not gambled for a long period of time. And then I'd relapsed. And that was the time when I was like, I had a lot of suicide ideology and, and I wanted to check out of life. And um, luckily for me, I was confronted by a woman. I was standing on the time bridge in Newcastle. And I was confronted by a woman who basically said, 
I don't know what's going on for your son. Like you might feel like dying today, but you probably don't want to die for the rest of your life. And that was me completely breaking down. And and that, and it was and it was exactly right. The statement was exactly right. I wanted out of that moment, but I didn't want out of life. And and I'd had suicidal ideology for a long period of time, but that moment in my sort of journey was just a massive pivotal point. And from there, I went home, went in the bedside table, took one of the numbers out my mum gave us, which was for Sport and Chance, which is a residential rehab for people who've been involved in professional sport of some sort. Um, rang them, and three weeks, three weeks later, I was in rehab, and it was that. That was me taking ownership of of that, and it wasn't me mum saying you need help, go here, go there, do this, do that, and that was very different to what had happened previously. You know, I, I remember my mum marching us into a Gamblers Anonymous meeting at one point. You need to go here, and my mum going into a room next door, which was which was a, a meeting called Gammonon, so that's for fam- family members affected by gambling. And my mum going in that room, and me walking back out. You know, and then 10 minutes before the meeting finished, I would walk back in the room so my mum could meet us coming out of the door again. You know, and it's, it's them behaviours of going, I don't want to be here. Like, why am I? And that tends to what happened when people try and fix you. And that's, you know, with all good intent and will in the world, you'll never be able to fix somebody that doesn't want help. But what you've got to try and be able to do is to hold space for them, you know, and allow them to explore what's going on for themselves and, and just sit with empathy and non-judgment, you know, because as soon as anybody feels any type of judgment, then they're going to shut down and they're going to run away and they're going to go back to whatever it was that they were trying to trying to talk to, talk to her about anyway. So, you know, if you do want to help somebody, I think it's massively important that you, you learn good communication skills. And that's not something that we all have, if I'm brutally honest. And when we struggle with empathy, because it's not something that's been around our lives consistently so learning how to show empathy um, especially in an organizational environment and having the skill set to be able to you know ask what we call thoughtful questions and use the right words to allow people just to really pull the heart out you know is what you tend to get and if you ask the right questions you can you can do that really well so learn to hold space is probably the thing I would be really encouraging anybody to do that wants to help anybody else I really, really like that, though, Richie, because when if people think they've got to fix something, it also needs a have got to have some sense of answer or where to go and what to do, and there's a lot of pressure on people thinking that they've got to solve a problem, and I think some people that can make them back right off. You know, they don't know what to say or what to do or how to deal with someone who's struggling with addiction because they've not encountered this before. And what we're getting through um, is a consistent message through all the topics that we're talking about through the Resilience Collective is that the one kind of common aspect is that if everyone can just hold more space and show compassion and not be judgmental, you know, be open-minded and create that. And that does mean, you know, empathy and so on. And there's, you know, we can learn how to have compassionate conversations. But if we can get that bit right, then whether someone's struggling with anxiety, depression, addiction, whatever um, their coping strategy is, or whatever's manifesting, we can support that person. And it's not then about having all the right answers to know exactly what to do. And I, and I think that takes pressure off people and makes it a bit more easy to engage with, a bit more like, oh, I can I can do that. That's That's just... That's having a nice, caring conversation. It's a pressure off. Yeah, totally. And holding space, that, like you say, it, it can help people in so many different ways. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's addiction, whether it's stress, whether it's depression, whether it's any other sort of anything that falls on that um, continuum, let's call it. I think by holding space for somebody. And, and for me, the greatest feeling that I ever got was when somebody... Um, made me feel heard and that was the changing point for me somebody got it you know and somebody just understood that um understood without judgment that I'm Richie's struggling and I'm just going to hold space for him you know I'm not going to say anything I'm not going to fix him but just allow him to speak because that's what we need to do really all of my problems were causing my head were the stories that I was telling myself 
And when I was actually able to tell somebody else the stories that are going on in my head, they sounded ridiculous anyway. <laughs> you know, like they sounded like, wow, is that really what I'm telling myself day in, day out? And just having somebody to bounce that off was sometimes, you know, helped us make a different decision, helped us choose a different path, helped us go a different way in life. And I still do that now. I still have people in my life now that, you know, I've got a really strong group of friends and support network, but I still have therapy, you know. I still have supervision because of the type of work that I do. Um, and I still work with a coach because I firmly believe then people can help us get to where I want to be and help us unpick what's going on a lot faster than me trying to do it on my own. And I've got no shame in that now. You know, I, when I first asked for help, I thought it was shameful and you know I thought I would be judged and I thought everybody would you know kind of call call his names you know who's going to call people names for asking for help um but that's kind of the perception I had of society so perception's not like that ever since I shared my story with anybody all I've ever had off anybody is well done I'm really pleased that you're addressing it and you're trying to sort the issues out um you know, and I've also learned that actually somebody else's opinion about me is nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing to do. It's their opinion and, and they're entitled to it. It's about how do I handle that? And that's internal again, you know, and, and that's the joy of not needing that external validation from other people. And I'm not going to lie. I still sometimes like that. <laughs> you know, I'm a human being. I still sometimes like somebody saying you're doing well, Richie. And, or, you know, giving us a bit of praise. I do like that but I don't need it. And I think that's the difference now in, in my life. I do still strive to do things that, you know, are, are adding to society, let's say, um, but it's a different need. Uh, now I like it, but I don't really need it to know that actually I, I can't be a decent human being. Are there any other, you, you said so much about today already. Are there any other, there's something that they haven't addressed in their own life. So 
if you are a massive fixer, ask yourself the question, what are you avoiding? What am I avoiding by trying to fix this other person? And see if I can go and fix a little bit of myself. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a full-blown addiction, but is there something else that is missing in your life, whether it be a bit of resilience, confidence, self-worth, you know, self-esteem, go and work on yourself a little bit. And yeah, I, I see a lot of people trying to pour from an empty cup, let's say, and, and I think it's important that you try and fill your own cup up so that you can be in the best possible space to help others. Well, she has said so much. I was like, really, really powerful, really powerful. I, and I, 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 I like that because I think it's an opportunity for people to reflect on themselves, actually, because uh, a lot of people's behaviours uh, about stuff maybe they're not dealing with shows up in how they're approaching other other people. So I think that's really profound. I think actually if anyone gets to the end of this episode and hears, hears you say that, I think they, they will see it as an opportunity to be less judgmental. But... I do believe it also drives a greater need because we know well-being programs don't work. It actually has to be something much more basic than that. And I think it is how we communicate with one another, how we hold space for one another. You know, are we doing all the talking or are we doing all the listening? You know, either extremes isn't great, but actually being able to ask those well-formed questions, sitting in a place of curiosity rather than judgment. Um, and actually knowing that actually the person in front of you is probably taking huge amounts of courage to actually be vulnerable you know being vulnerable is not easy for so many people and I would imagine those people with addiction it's even harder because you are you are dealing with stuff on a daily daily basis and um and I think for myself as well it's about we don't want people you know sort of taking the wrong message here either which is it's not about observing people from afar and putting two and two together and getting some sort of conclusion that is 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 not right because that's not helpful either but i think if managers have good relationships with their employees they would know a change in behavior they would see a change in behavior they would be able to moderate and certainly say this is not richie's norm or this is not amantha's norm this is out of character and therefore it would require a conversation so i agree with everything you've said you just said it even better i, I feel the responsibility is on both parties you as an individual, but also as your organisation to to support you. And that's not like a tick box exercise, like had the conversation done, uh, moving on. Now, can we ask you to get back to being your brilliant self at work? Because I hear an awful lot of that. I feel if I had a pound for every time someone has said to me, well, we've put a lot of investment behind this person already and we're not really seeing very much back. Yeah. That's probably a conversation for a whole other day. But I think it is about if you really value a person actually you who knows how long that journey is going to be but actually you'll 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 get that I don't want to say gratitude but when someone has been helped there is a difference that comes back people are are, are you know are loyal they want to they want to do well they want to do good and for probably better reasons I would say um so yeah I see a lot of um in in a lot of uh, corporate environments I see a lot of like policies around drugs and alcohol and all that sort of stuff but I never really see a pathway of recovery or a pathway of support yeah. in the policies. And if you want people to reach out and ask for help and sort their issues out so they can then go on to perform at a much better level, the, this, the people need that need the help need to know that it's there and it's on offer and it's not just going to be dismissal or, you know, um, sort of judgment on them and, I think that would go a long way in being able to help people come and identify and reach out and say, can I join that recovery program or can I join that support program? Because that would just bring people into the real world of how do I actually move forward and, and get the help and support I need, but I, I don't see it very often. Richie, we're going to um, get your details and the Epic Restart Foundation's details in the show notes, and I'll also put them in the resource. Um, and we would urge people to listen to this conversation, actually just to share it far and wide, because as we've already discussed today, um, we all know somebody. Um, so, so I think even that awareness would be really helpful. Um, we'd also be encouraging people to download the resource that will be um, available um, and read that, digest it, 
think about it, reflect on it, discuss it with your team colleagues, um, and just think about how you know what that means for you as a as a team, what that means for you um as a friendship group, and how often do you check in? I was talking to um our male colleague yesterday, he's like, as guys, we don't check in with each other. So actually have that conversation, you know. So it's it's about again normalizing the conversations that we need to have around this stuff. Um and follow uh, the resilience collective hashtag the resilience collective on LinkedIn. Um, I would urge people to do that because I can uh, keep up to date with all the other resources and, and everything that we're talking about in this space. And Matt, have you got anything to add? Only just a huge amount of gratitude uh, to Richie because um, you know facts tell people stuff, don't they? And you can read a whole load of facts and could repeat them parrot fashion, but actually. You know, it's stories that that land with us because like coming full circle to what uh, Richie said, you know, stories create feelings and feelings create those emotions. And so um, I found it hugely emotional and, and a great amount of feeling to hear your story. And I think that's what people will remember that actually uh, that success is in supporting one another, isn't it? Actually, that's how companies should uh, rate themselves in terms of success. How much are we supporting our people? Or is it all loaded, front-loaded with expectation? Because if it is, that isn't support. So um, I, I think you've done a great service and, and I'm definitely going to take more of a look at the work that you're doing. I know a lot of the corporates that I'm working with would find your work hugely valuable. And we need to sort of take it out of the shadows even more, don't we? And put firmly put it on the stage where it where it belongs. So thank you so much. Really grateful for your your vulnerability and you're willing to share that's been amazing no thank you for in the advice thank you Richard. you're welcome i hope you enjoyed the conversation today i invite you to think about one thing that you will take away to think about or do differently i'd be really grateful if you can give me a thumbs up on apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and for an extra brand point leave me a short review I'm really keen to help drive real change for better practice in the world of people at work and spreading the message will help that. I'd love you to also join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things that I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. Please do reach out to me directly to discuss the topics covered on this podcast or perhaps other challenges around people at work. And if we're not already acquainted on LinkedIn, please connect. All the links you need are in the show notes. Until next time, bye for now.